Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobile World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. This is episode 15, recorded on March 19th, 2021. And this week's guest is Barney Pell, a specialist, in fact, maybe the specialist in artificial intelligence. We're going to pick his brain on all kinds of leading edge technology. But first, let's check in with Grant and the news. What have you got for us this week, Grant? Well, uh, we're going to have an incredible podcast uh, with a very futuristic guy. So I'm going to try to, to keep something close to some of the things that we'll touch on because they have such a big uh, impact in our life. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is in um, the, the world of autonomous vehicles, there is a new autonomous full-size bus service being um, introduced in a Spanish city of Malaysia. And we're talking a full-size bus, and they now started running it. It's a 60-seater bus equipped with sensors and cameras and artificial intelligence, which will improve its decision, not just based on the route it's taking, but try to find better routes that are more efficient. And this is being launched, and this is the first, a full self-driving bus with no one on it. Um, and then uh, other places are doing the same type of trial run with smaller ones like Copenhagen and Hamburg, where they're running eight-seater and, and ten-seater buses. But this is the first full-grown city bus. On a public street. Oh, yeah. We're talking not just a street, an area. So it's going to run an eight-kilometers loop. I think it's like six times a day. This is like happening so fast out. And it's all because of, of course, all this new inventions of artificial intelligence. And, and, uh, and it's going to improve not only obviously be more sustainable, it's going to improve even how it takes its routes. You know, you tell me a story like this, and then I see something like I did this past week in one of the Toronto papers about the union that runs the Toronto, Toronto Transit Commission uh, putting out an ad saying that you need two human operators for every single train. When you go to so, yeah. so many other places yeah. on the planet and you know the, the subway systems are totally automated, and now you're talking about the buses being totally automated. Wow. Um, I want to tread lightly on this, but it's called unions. And, you know, I don't know. No, I, I mean, if you, if you I, wait to get on a podcast, our podcast company, you'll see how people will have jobs. And we have to recognize the efficiencies and what to do with them. Well, again, it's, it's like you, uh, like trains. Trains used to have cabooses and you had a guy in the back in the caboose. Now, no trains have a caboose. There you go. So you, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation. Um, and there's going to be a certain amount of resistance. I mean, there's going to be resistance. But, Alan, the reason I bring this news up is, unfortunately, we are not the leader. And I wish we were. We always are the follower in Europe, uh, in most cases, uh, and the United States. But Europe in the transportation world always has been the leader by design. Okay? Yeah. And it's nice to see. For a guy who likes technology, um, it's pretty incredible. And I think we're going to see it here quicker than you think. Yeah, it's just a matter of time because this sort of technological progress cannot be stopped, nor should it be stopped. No. And 
and these people will end up, you know, f- these positions will disappear and the people that would have filled those positions will find other things. To do. And that's for their benefit. You'd be surprised at how many people are reinventing themselves even during this terrible pandemic. And so, you know, you right. got to take that way. And, and these people who lose their job, think about their kids. They're coming through technology and they're going to be the backbone for our future. And we have to, we have to support that. And, and I'm one of those guys that will replace and I'm good with it. So. Um, another thing that uh, to stay within that area, and you know we've talked about it a lot, is the in Guangzhou, China. Um, there's a company called Ehang Holdings, and um, they're launching they're launching the very first eco sustainable vertiport. Okay, and, what, what's a vertiport? Oh, a vertiport is basically uh, a port in the air, built up in the air where you land your mobile helicopters and your mobile cars and so on. And they've already started designing, we'll build this eco-sustainable vertiport, and it's going to be in Italy. Um, it's, it's simply amazing. So essentially, um, it will also generate energy, enough energy to charge a, a passenger uh, plane, or we'll call robot, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, it'll, be, um, it'll have a cafe, it'll have a tower, it will have all kinds of things. A lift, the restaurant will be panoramic. It'll have panoramic, sorry, it'll have takeoff and landing platform. And it will have, uh, it will, the, just the slip of photovoltaic uh, panels will generate over 300 kilowatts of electric power per day. And so, again, um, hello, it's happening. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see. But the rooftop will be the takeoff landing area, and then you go down to the restaurant and down to the street. And this, yeah, this be, is the, it'll yeah, it'll be an aerial hub to start with, so it'll be more for tourists and local small hubs. But we know where this is going, obviously. Yeah, it's it's going in the way of Blade Runner and Fifth. Yeah, Element. and I think that they have a they have a name for it. Uh, it's called urban air mobility. Okay, uh, that is the sector they're in and the new era of flight, and these are what they call vertiports. And I think, again, um, it's happening now. We'll find that out as we talk again, as we go along. But every time you and I talk, something else happens like this. And so this is not the first time we talked about this. We talked about Uber doing this and so on. So it's happening. And this is a contract that's being done. This is in China, yes? No, the Chinese company, and it's being built in Italy. Oh, and being built in Italy. Okay, we hear, I mean, they're doing the same sort of thing in, in some places in Brazil that I've heard of. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dubai is is big into the flying cars thing. Uh, oh, it's, 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 it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think what you're seeing, though, is more and more of these type of companies are the future. Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll call them hubs, infrastructure hubs, whatever. But uh, And we're going to have one here, not to this level, but they're looking at hubs right now in Toronto of all the transportation we have, but it won't, you know, I think one day they could take that hub and build it in the air and we'll have, um, we'll have the, 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 the air, the air, the air vehicles as well. And I think that will happen. I think that the vertiports will be a standard and I don't see how, how it won't be. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Well, we can't even, we can't even build subways, but anyway, continue. I know, but so, okay. But I just want it to happen. All right, I'm, right. I'm willing it to happen. How's that? Um, Good. And, you know, um, so that's interesting. Give me one more story. Yeah, I got I got you one more story. Um, and this is an interesting story because it's more to the news. It's more to what we know about. But I want to talk about it. Um, 
and we'll hear more about it over the show. But um, so we know that more than three billion emails and passwords were leaked out online. Um, and 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 I think what you understand is what I've learned from our upcoming. Everyone's got to listen to it. Is what happens really with this information is pretty incredible. But this data breach gets back to this is happening every single week now. Right? It's, this is before it was wow a breach that was like you know once a year. Now that's all we're talking about, and this is three billion. Um, and these are text, clear text, emails, and passwords. Okay, now I'm not suggesting that these passwords are doing anything, but um, they they are the new type of breach, and they have a name for it as well. Um, uh, like everyone has a, has a name for things. Uh, it's called the compilation of many breaches, which are credentials and data together. Okay, and so they give it that name, and it's um, what we'll call comb, and it's now the biggest problem we have, and it's fairly simple to do, and that's the problem. It's really simple. In fact, um, I know that it all comes down to, I'll give you an example where you have to look at it. When you get sent a password, someone sends you a password, and you think it's a trusted site. Um, you're changing your password, you need to reset your password, they say, enter these numbers, right? You get a text and it says, uh, enter 14569, okay? Right. What you don't know is that's a program to deep into your phone. That's a program? Okay. What? So simple, Alan. It's so simple. It's a program. So when you enter that number and say enter, you've now opened up the firewall for you, for someone to go into your whatever it can. I mean, and everyone can dwell in it deeper and so on. But that's the problem. Now, how do you fight that? Well, there's VPNs, as we know. And yes, that will help. And so there are ways to stop that uh, type of breach because VPNs detect that, that, that may protect that it's not a, a friendly site. But the fact is, it just takes one or two to get a whole group. If you get, if they get you, they probably get me. Okay, Alan, because I'm connected to you. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. Okay, so my point is, um, you're going to see programs to fight that. And um, I'm sure we'll have that discussion on one of our shows, because we know that's coming. And and so you're going to have more things the way to stop that kind of stuff. But it's a big problem. And we should all, I tell everyone to be aware. Okay. So a little bit of a, a little bit of panic there, but uh, <laughs> I'll try and tamp that down a little bit. I'm helping them out. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. Uh, okay. You can just rock, you can just rock me to sleep tonight. <laughs> Barney Pell has an insane resume, groundbreaking work on artificial intelligence, going all the way back to the early nineties, working on deep space probes with NASA helping Microsoft develop their Bing search engine. Oh, and he's also a co-founder of Locomobile World. We spoke to him from his home in San Francisco. We've reached Marty at his home in San Francisco, and I'm just going through his LinkedIn page, and you've got so much on your resume, I don't even know where to start. Where would you start if you tried to explain to mom and dad what Bernie Pell does for a, uh, for a living? Well, I've had, um, I've had a really fun and uh, interesting and diverse career. Um, centers around artificial intelligence. Uh, so my uh, undergrad was at Stanford in a new program at the time called Symbolic Systems. It's based in artificial intelligence undergrad degree. Um, and I started working uh, while undergrad at SRI International in the Artificial Intelligence Center um, doing AI and natural language processing back in what would now be called pretty early days. Um, then did my PhD at Cambridge University uh, on artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
And that was back in the early 90s, so quite a long time ago. Um, and my work was on getting machines to be to generally intelligent. I was interested in that, and I made programs to uh, play games where they could play brand new games they'd never seen and use general purpose game playing as a test bed and pathway to artificial general intelligence. So with pattern recognition and and a variety of other machine learning algorithms. Yeah, yeah. It had a lot of different um, algorithms in it. And part of the challenge was to be given the rules of a brand new game that no one's ever seen and on its own, figure out what would be good strategies for that and then try them out and improve and learn from experience. Okay, like what kind of games? Are we talking about per first-person shooters? Are we talking strategy games? What are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about strategy uh, Strategy board games was my starting. So chess-like games, so chess and checkers and those kind of things. And the program could take in the rules of a game that's never seen before, um, analyze it, um, practice, and then play it you know, very well the very first time it's ever been played. And it took about 30 years before... Uh, the field was catching up to do those kinds of things. So and no one's that. really still doing that general problem. Alan, yet. you got to remember, Alan, this is 1990s Barney was doing this. I just want everyone to understand that. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. And everything was in its infancy. I don't think I had it. I didn't even get my first PC until 1992. So, okay. So, uh, so that was really, it was really exciting. And I, I really was trying to lay a foundation for the whole field so that people who wanted to work on general purpose AI could show that their stuff was actually good and interesting, um, as opposed to we just played one game of chess and who knows how much engineering was done on it and who knows where it can scale and generalize. So um, that became very popular to start thinking about that path to general purpose intelligence maybe 20, 25 years later, but that was really my focus. Um, and then I went to NASA uh, and that was fantastic. So I worked in the Artificial Intelligence Center at NASA Ames Research Center um, out in Silicon Valley. Um, and did a lot of exciting things. Um, I think one of the most exciting things was being able to work on the first AI system to fly on board a spacecraft in deep space and, and control the whole thing. Um, that was just absolutely amazing. Uh, we, we had a set of researchers working on really advanced AI algorithms and components, and NASA said, we want to be able to have an autonomous spacecraft, spacecraft that can respond to uh, problems in space on its own, uh, respond to opportunities, uh, recover from problems, recover, explore opportunities, replan the whole mission as needed, you know, and go out and achieve its own things. That was absolutely amazing. Which spacecraft? Again, which spacecraft was that? So we flew that um, on the Deep Space One mission. So um, it was about a two hundred million dollar um, space mission, and it was very risky to hand over control of that uh, to the sort of new, unproven artificial intelligence engine. Uh, but man, was that exciting! I mean, having my code get to fly in space. You know, going out and see, going out to the launch of the space center, uh, it was it was just amazing. And also, we were working really at the time. It was the most advanced uh, autonomous agent, autonomous control system, and we were blazing trails on that. And we knew at the time that that was going to be the kind of thing where we have, you know, years later, you'd have all these autonomous systems everywhere, whether it's self-driving cars or sort of self-driving planes, all that kind of stuff. And we were really early. And looking at how can that really work and how do you think about these intelligent agents and getting to fly it and, and just absolutely amazing. Um, and then um, I also had um, led uh, a pretty large organization um, of you know, strong research teams applying advanced AI and collaboration technology across a bunch of different uh, NASA missions and needs. Um, and we actually put up the first spoken dialogue system in space as well. So, um, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Siri or OK Google or Cortana. Siri, yeah, uh, yeah. And Barney, how old so, were you then? How old was I then? Yeah, I'm just curious. Oh, oh, well, I but guess I was. 20s? I was around, yeah. I think by then I was probably around uh, 30. 
Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, so we flew that in space, and that was really exciting and demonstrated that uh, astronauts could uh, have the support of the system to execute complex procedures like putting on and off spacesuits. Normally, you have to take one astronaut reading the procedures and the other one saying, check, check, I've done it. Um, and here, the AI system could do that and read it to the astronaut. The astronaut could engage and get clarifications, and it would help them execute the procedures. So reducing the need from two astronauts down to one, which is very important kind of in space where you just have limited time of astronauts. So that was um, that was also amazing. Again, very fun going from the advanced research concepts and the possibilities to really making an impact and demonstrating things in space. Um, we did a lot of other fun and, and exciting things there when I was at NASA. Um, and then I went off to um, kind of be an entrepreneur. Uh, I was really excited about startup companies. Uh, I wanted to learn the whole business world. Uh, so I transitioned out of NASA. I joined uh, a friend's startup company early in the dot boom. Um, it was the first site to put up stock quotes and charts on the internet called stockmaster.com. Um, and uh, we kind of grew the company. Uh, we were eventually acquired um, by Red Herring, uh, so the technology um, kind of magazine and site around a vision of bringing uh, public market type of information and tracking to all the world's private companies. Uh, that that kind of the startup world and the private world was going to become very important. Uh, people want to track it and participate. So that kind of stuff turned out to happen later as well. Um, and um, I was a venture capitalist for a little while. Um, and then really, I was finally ready to start my own company. Uh, and so the first company I started was called PowerSet. Um, my vision was that natural language was going to become central um, in all the ways we interact with computers. Uh, all the computing power was going to be increasing. I started this, by the way, in 2005. So I thought, you know, in 10 years, we're going to have 10 to 100 times the computing power what we have today. And that's going to open up the door for AI. And, and natural language processing is going to be something people really want to do. You really want to just talk to your computers or use language in them. And I thought that the eventually all consumer electronics devices, everything we interact with will all have language as a normal ability. You'll take it for granted. You can talk to your whatever, uh, you know, talk to your fridge, talk to your oven, talk to anything you want, your thermostat, and you could have, um, you know, you could have the system understand what you're saying and, and take action and give you information. This was in 2005. My visions become commonplace within about a decade. That turned out to be true. Um, and I picked search as one of the key uh, application areas because when you're interacting with like, a search engine like Google, at the time it was all just keywords and the system had no understanding of natural language at all. In fact, if you put in kind of ask questions and who and what and when and how much or any kind of things like that, it just made the search engine worse. And so people were being trained not to use language, and people felt that they just weren't as good as searchers as the expert searchers, because this kind of arcane, how do you make the computer get just what you want? And I felt that we have this incredible power to use language already built in, and why can't we use that to interact with our machines? And anyone, anyone will be much more powerful, um, and we'll open up the world and accessibility of systems, and it would all be great. So um, I built this uh, company called PowerSet. We licensed the technology from Xerox Park the same place where you got uh, Windows and the mouse and all of that. And they had been working for 30 years on the vision of the conversational user interface. Um, and so we commercialized. It was the first group to come in and commercialize that, um, brought in a bunch of the team, surrounded ourselves with those great computational linguistics people and great search engine people, product people, um, and scalable systems. And so we, we demonstrated that we could really do a deep natural language understanding of content all across the web and search it and let people use it. And really, we're showing the world how you might interact if you could actually use language with your search engine. 
Right. And Halden Interactive was a semantic experience. And then that company uh, was acquired by Microsoft uh, because Microsoft wanted to make a new search engine that could compete with Google and bring all of Microsoft's strengths to bear. And so um, we got to come in and help make a new search engine that became Bing and, you know, and basically show the world what you could do with uh, a more meaningful semantic user experience. Um, and that happened. And so the company was actually uh, really ahead and showing the capabilities. And then Google wound up uh, shifting their focus from search to knowledge. They started having semantic experiences. You know, you see what happened with Siri. All these things started taking off. So it was wonderful to get to see what had been a vision start to come to reality and really, you know, be copied and, and influence and shape a whole bunch of the world. So that was really exciting. Uh, while at Microsoft, I had the, still this vision about the, um, the speech and the natural interactions you could have and um, helped to kick off the project that became Cortana, Microsoft's own conversational assistant. I didn't know um, that. That's a good one. Mm -hmm, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and I also led um, Bing's local and mobile search teams. Um, so that was very a wonderful time. Um, and then, you know, I had this uh, kind of crazy idea to do something much easier, I thought. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was leading a mobile and local search team, and, I, and I, I thought, you know, parking is a really interesting problem. It's a boring problem. But wouldn't that be a great if you could change that world with sort of mobile and um, computing and license plate recognition and all this stuff. And so I wound up, um, you know, getting involved in parking. Um, and that's actually how I met Grant. So, so what, what were you doing with parking? So I was working on my vision around parking was that you should be able to use mobile devices or license plate recognition and seamlessly access any kind of parking systems, whether it's just paying on street, the parking meter, or you should be able to drive up to a parking gate. The gate should recognize who you are from your phone or your license plate, open up, cab access. You should never even go to the parking meter, just drive out and you're charged. And, you know, everything would be completely seamless. And then with all that information, you'd be able to have it be intelligently finding when there's parking for you, reserve your spaces, know that it's there. All these kind of things would open up. And, you know, and parking's a gateway to everything you do. Everywhere you go, you're parking somewhere. It's a gateway to that. Um, and you'd open up to basically this, like, parking as a gateway to all of commerce with malls and everything else. So that was kind of a vision I had. And we were starting to work on it from the mobile app and uh, opening up parking gates and opening up any parking gates using a sort of Internet of Things device we would attach. And um, that was the vision that, that I was having. And we, I had a little startup company doing that. And then I met Grant. And uh, Grant had had that same vision and more uh, for 30 years, actually, having been a pioneer <laughs> in the whole field. <laughs> so, so uh, said we should have met 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Grant found me. Um, we decided to combine our companies, um, and that became Locomobi. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. So you're you're a co-founder of Locomobi? Co-founder of Locomobi. Yeah. The original locomotive. How, how, Grant, how did I not know that? Because <laughs> you're stupid? Could be. Okay. I, I don't know. Bar you can look it up. Yeah, Barney and I co-founded Locomobi. Um, and then, um, and now it's Locomobi World. But um, the whole idea, the whole concept, of course, we took it from a much larger pace, Alan. Um, I didn't, I had a much different, I had a very same technology approach but I felt we could mount, maintain and monitor transportation, that parking was simply part of that infrastructure. And so my goal was to go bigger with infrastructure. And that's what we did, essentially. And it's not like 
it's not easy, okay? Um, but we use it using Barney's knowledge of the tech side and my vision and what we were doing tech-wise to finally come to where I am today, okay, which is, a, you know, the leading brand in the city in Toronto. Um, but that's where it all started, and we're not done. <laughs> but, but I think um, – um, and, and by the way, the, 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 the issue uh, – so what you don't know and what Barney didn't really say uh, and meant to, and if you didn't catch it, of course, mobile payments for parking standard today, but it wasn't when Barney's uh, had the idea with his co-founders there. And all these things that Barney told you, um, still some are not a reality, but um, our continued uh, motivation not to stop <laughs> um, is, is why we're still here and, and seeing it now. We're probably, we're five, 10 years too early and now it's taking off. And, uh, but taking Barney's, listen, Barney's right. We were in a low tech world for Barney's. You know, you heard Barney's background, but I felt if we could really take that type of knowledge and put it into what we do, there'd be nothing like it. And that's simply what we tried to do. Yeah. And we also had a vision of um, Grant and I together, both Grant was super early, but we both had a vision the cloud was going to change everything. Oh, um, sorry. Yeah. Of course, I was called an idiot about that, Barney. Um, cloud, are you crazy? And here I am by myself building a data center and trying to make a cloud work because everyone thought I was an idiot until I met Barney. <laughs> yeah. And so we really built this and we built everything from the cloud at the start. And so it was interesting because all the park infrastructure equipment was just natively connected back to the cloud. There was almost no intelligence in those systems. And it's still um, that way. Except for, it's, Barney, it really is. And, yeah. and although we like to read all these great letter uh, announcements, they're not really anything. But um, from that, though, I think we're here now, but I think, Barney, um, what we all want to know, and you are, in my viewpoint, the expert, where do you think AI plays? Um, I mean, you didn't mention about your, your, your coexistence with um, as being one of the, the, the members of the Destruction Labs. So you have oh, some yeah. roots, yeah. and everyone here in Toronto knows Destruction Labs. But, you know, given that... Oh, let's just, let me just say that that's the, um, the, to be clear, that's the Creative Destruction Lab. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. Um, and, um, and so actually it was very funny. I was, um, I was a super active, um, you know, angel and uh, mentor to startup companies. And um, with Grant, when Locomobi, we were based in Toronto. So I was coming up to Toronto all the time. And then um, I was actually on a flight to Toronto uh, talking to a friend of mine and his company was a artificial intelligence for drug discovery company based out of Toronto. And I was talking about AI and wanting to do like an AI incubator and help all these AI startup companies get going. And he said, oh, well, do you know about the Creative Destruction Lab? And we're just starting a new track on AI and machine learning. And um, based in Toronto, and the founder of the whole Creative Destruction Lab program, Ajay Agrawal, was actually there on the same plane. Yes. So on this yeah. flight to Toronto, I went up, crashed first class, hung out with him. Um, and by the end of the flight, I agreed to be a founding fellow of the AI machine learning track of the, of the Creative Destruction Lab. So that was wonderful. So now I had multiple yes, reasons to be root. in Toronto. <laughs> I'd come and I'd be working with Grant and Locomoti. And then, and, and so I've been, been involved with that for like six years. Um, so there, I'm, I'm an honorary Canadian, you know, kind of been spent so much time in Toronto and then helped the program expand to Vancouver and Montreal. Mentored probably by now over a thousand startups through that program and um, invested in probably about, you know, maybe 50 to 100 
uh, Canadian companies out of the program. And I really have loved working with all the Canadian entrepreneurs and Canadian teams and, and business people. It's a great ecosystem. But I mean, I'm just a big fan of Canada and, and a really strong supporter. And he's been great. And I have been on my own until Barney got together with me and started to understand what we got to do to make Toronto this great center because we do have great people. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been a pretty incredible ride to now. And, and Barney's always doing stuff that's exciting. But truly, um, where do we go with all this stuff, Barney? Where do we go with okay. all the stuff you guys are doing? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, so it's artificial intelligence is just, is just super exciting, okay? Um, and it's a wonderful time, and we're barely getting started on, on the possibilities with AI. Um, I mean, you've already seen AI changing our daily lives. Like, I talked about the search engines. Um, and now, I mean, the fact that we can go and really try asking questions into your search engines, and you're going to get better results, okay? And we all know that now we can ask Alexa or Google or Siri, all these things. We're taking for granted the kind of things we can do. But even then, they only understand a bit, right? And that understanding is going to keep on increasing and increasing. And you can take more and more actions. Um, you know, we're still not at the point where you can just fluently say what you want and the systems just do whatever you want to do for you. So that's going to be increasing and coming. You're seeing AI has applications really everywhere. Um, everything is becoming smart. Um, uh, so, you know, just, you know, we had license plate, you know, we were doing in Locomobi and still are license plate recognition. And that's a great example of being able to, in real time, look at that license plate, figure it out, and then use that. Now, you can get more advanced by recognizing the entire, what is that car? Now you can recognize when has that car been everywhere, connect the dots across all the patterns of who's come in your vehicle, where these cars been, um, what might they have been doing? Uh, just, you know, so every area you think about in business, you'll now see AI is going to be key. Um, so where, so some, I mean, I can talk, I almost don't know where to get started. There's so many fun things to say about AI. Um, everyone's going to have to be upskilled to kind of know about AI. Um, one thing that I would say on the, like, on the technology side, you know, you might have some fun if you haven't heard about something called um, GPT-3. No. GPT-2 or GPT-3. It's something a lot of people don't know about, but it's, it's very fun. They can train AI systems to build these large language models. Okay. A language model is basically looking at statistics of all the text you've seen on the whole web or anywhere and basically seeing what words come after, before and after and around what other words. Like how do the words sort of come out, come out together? So, you know, whenever you see a noun, you see the before it. Okay. You see certain words that appear in combinations. And it turns out that the more you fill in and you try to train the system to predict, what might that next work be, given all the words we've seen before in some big context? It turns out that without really anything else, the system starts acquiring some really amazing abilities to um, generate language. That's the key. And so these things can now, yeah, so they can now like construct, you can give it a few topics and it'll make a whole story for you. Actually a coherent story, okay? Um, you can have it start writing advertising and marketing copy for you. You give it some bullets and it'll generate entire paragraphs and their paragraphs will actually pretty, be pretty good. Um, you can give it some example pieces of an image and it'll complete the whole, the rest of the image for you. People are now finding that they can like use these tools in ways that just by giving a few examples of what you want it to be. Um, you want some encoding examples, it'll do code. You want math examples, it'll do math. I mean, the thing has got this almost uncanny level of feels like intelligence, but it doesn't really know anything. It's just going statistical association patterns from being fed a vast amount of data. Okay, now when we talk data, we're talking exabytes and yottabytes of data. Where does yeah. this all go and who, who polices it? Who makes sure that it stays private and doesn't get into the wrong hands? 
Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. The sort of issues about um, privacy uh, and control of data is one of these central questions. So I guess let's see, let's try to see where, where do you want to start from that? So right now, who has that data? Okay. Who tends to have that data is like the very, very large um, search engine companies. Okay. Right. So they have so much of that data. Um, that it's actually hard for academics who don't have that data to compete and innovate in AI. That's why there's almost this talent draw with people going there, okay? Because they've just got so much data. Wow. Um, uh, governments actually have a fair amount of data as well, of course. But basically, you know, big companies and government, you know, have giant amounts of data. Who polices them? Well, you've got some active debates. Um, you know, Apple, for example, has taken a very strong stance saying, we don't want to actually have that data, right? We want to basically have that data live on the edge live on your devices, um, and we'll maybe encrypt it in certain ways where we can process and give the benefits of that data without actually ever really having had, you know, your own raw and your own personal data. And then there's all kinds of issues about making sure that you have um, access controls on the data and auditability on the data. So, I mean, the government's going to need to use this data to uh, find bad actors, right, terrorists and this kind of thing. But you need to have controls on that so that they don't just access it and spy, you know, kind of spy on individuals and things like that without, without the rights. So there's a lot of complexity around that. There's a lot of concern. I, I think in the end, um, you know, the people aren't going to try and they don't, they don't need your private data, your personal data to do a great job of, of delivering good services to you. And so part of the art is then being more intelligent about how we can partially encrypt the data, hide the anonymous, uh, hide the personalized data and still give you the most maximal benefits of the AI inferences. All right, let's steer this conversation into the world of smart cities, because after all, that's the name of this podcast. Where do you see artificial intelligence becoming embedded in smart cities beyond what we have right now? Great. Well, um, obviously, we can start with parking. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, what's that? Transportation. <laughs> transportation. So parking, parking and transportation <laughs> is one of the central things in, in the so functioning of the smart city. Okay. Um, and really, you just want to be able to uh, summon, you want to be able to have the systems tell you the right path to get from A to B optimally. Um, you know, is it catching and catching an Uber, um, catching a bus, taking a shuttle, getting on a scooter, like whatever else it is. And imagine a world where, you know, everyone is doing something and traffic is known immediately. And the systems are guiding you through all that traffic flow to maximize the use of the, all the resource in the city and get everywhere from point A to B as safely, cheaply, kind of effectively as possible. Right. So when we're, so AI to eliminate traffic jams, um, you know, AI to help us get the best place, AI to sort of maximize the routes for all of our vehicles, um, self-driving vehicles, not just self-driving cars, self-driving delivery system and delivery robots. Okay. Robots. There you go. Yeah. You know, yeah. Robots all over the place. Um, security, um, you know, very big deal. Um, you know, we should basically, obviously uh, in a smart city, you want to be safe and secure. And so you want your systems being able to watch Everything, hear everything, know when there's been crime, know when to send in, you know, scarce police resources. Okay. Keep police safe, keep people safe. Okay. Um, all of this stuff all together. So I think there's all the transportation kinds of things, all the, all the security kinds of things, uh, all the energy, um, usage, right? So energy is a really huge deal. And can we be intelligent about when we're turning on? Our devices, our, all of our devices should be smart and connected and aware of what's happening. So when is energy um, the cheapest? And that's when the device should be drawing the energy using intelligent storage and battery systems in the meantime. So, you know, if you can change energy, you're also then affecting pollution. 
um, kind of waste management. There are. Um, it just doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. It, it doesn't stop. And essentially, there are so many um, resource allocation decisions being made. And our ways of making those resource allocation decisions are uh, 50 years old or more. Okay. And if you have intelligence, if you have the information kind of at the edge where it's appearing, if you have understanding about people, if you have understanding about costs and economics and all kinds of trade-offs, then um, essentially AI can help the entire system make better decisions about all the resource allocations in the city, thus you know, making us all more efficient, uh, reducing pollution, uh, increasing quality of life. Uh, I got one question, if that's okay, Alan. Go. Because I always have to ask this question, and Barney's good to answer we talk a lot about quantum computing. Barney, where are we with quantum computing? We talk a lot about it, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so um, I'm, I'm really uh, excited about quantum computing. I'm um, um, in some of my ventures uh, working on some very exciting things in quantum computing right now. But first of all, people may not even know. Should I explain a little bit about what quantum computing yeah, is? I, you may, yeah, we, we've talked about it before, but you'd be the best to explain it better. Yeah, break okay. it down. <clears throat> okay, so I'll try to break it down. Okay. Um, so. First, let's begin with um, classical physics. Okay, classical physics, Newtonian physics, is um, is is the way that things are, are natural to us, and the way that people thought about physics for the longest time. Um, you know, every object is separate; um, they interact uh, separately. Uh, things follow deterministic uh, rules. Okay, you can basically solve everything from that. You can predict, you know, everything predictable. It's all nice and orderly. Okay, and things are in exactly one state at a time. Nice and simple, just like our minds think about things. Straight formula. <laughs> then um, there was quantum physics. So now, so Newtonian physics was great and classical was great. Can do lots of good things. It just happens that it's not actually accurate. It's an approximation. It's a simplification. Okay. Then came quantum physics, some more advanced math and some crazy ideas that, in fact, um, things can be in multiple states at once. In fact, that's the way the real world is. Things not in one state; they're in multiple states called superposition. And things aren't independent, they can be entangled. So two particles can actually be entangled such that if one changes state, the other one automatically changes state too. They're forever linked. No matter how far apart they are, there's no like light time of communication. One changes, they just change. People don't know this, by the way, Alan. So. Oh, but it's Einstein's spooky interaction at a distance. It is, it is. So there's, there's entanglement, um, there's superposition, um, and you know, things aren't discrete, you know, they're continuous. Everything's very noisy, um, and it's really counterintuitive. You know, as, as Feynman said, if you think you understand quantum physics, you know you're wrong, because you don't. It's exactly not what our minds are good at understanding. It's completely counterintuitive. It just happens that it's accurate, okay? It's just much more accurate. So <clears throat> that's quantum physics. Now let's go, to, let's go to computing. So computing started in a very um, digital, discrete way, just like classical physics. So classical computing... Um, the central notion of information theory is a bit, right? A bit is a unit of information, and it's either everything's either one or zero, and every bit is separate. And you do everything you can to make sure that these bits are always one or zero, and that no bit affects the status of no bit in memory affects any other bits. You do all your work there, so it's completely discretized, completely logical. It obeys the simple Boolean logic, and it's very intuitive. We can really understand this. Okay, it's and there's certain things which we just know to be very hard. You know, basically certain kinds of problems are just very hard because that's just how they are um, with the way that our logic works. But similarly, it's also just an approximation. Okay. And it turns out that you can bring quantum math, that same kind of quantum physics and the same interaction properties 
if you bring those into computer science, um, you change the game as well. So now, instead of having a bit where things are one or zero, and they're all separate, you have a qubit, quantum bit. Okay, And a quantum bit is not just one or zero. It's actually any possible value in superposition. All possibilities are, have a probability attached to them. You don't even know what it is. And why is that, Barney? Why are all, like I've talked about qubits before, but why do you have all possibilities from a qubit? Well, um, that's really the definition. Um, it's actually just, and it's actually so you can use the math, right? It's, the real issue is um, we made bits as a simplification, okay? We worked hard to make bits, okay? Uh, one and zero, everything. Yeah. We, we were hard to make those be simple and reliable so we could deal with computing at the time. Now, it turns out that if you actually use these qubit properties and you let things be any value and you operate on the math of these things and you can entangle these things together and you can make networks and gates out of these kinds of um, properties, that you can change the whole game um, in what's possible with computing. So you can go, yeah. I understand writing code in the old way where you have zeros and ones. So you have a, a I don't know, you have a string of text that basically tells you what your machine is going to do. How do you write qubit code? Okay, so um, so that's a good question. Um, and just as you're writing code, um, you're writing code in a programming language. Okay, and that programming language, you know, it's sort of like C, you know, C or Java or something like that. That language is itself being compiled down into an assembly language that's then um, going down into a machine code that's running on sort of the metal of machines. That's what's really happening. So there's a set of layers of um, systems built on top so you can write in a higher level language, okay? Now, and you might write a program that you can program, ask queries in SQL, even a higher level language, okay? And you've got a whole stack of things supporting you. So in the same way, um, that stack of languages and capabilities are being written for quantum computers, okay? So you'll have the low level where, you know, it's these messy qubits with their math and all the things that they're doing very close to the kind of way that the machine at the foundational metal level or hardware level is working. But then you're going to have some higher level programming languages on top where you're basically able to say, I want to solve these equations. And the system will convert that query about solving equations um, you know, into the right more specific quantum program that ultimately running on quantum gates down and down and down um, that will then give you sort of much better results. And you may not have to worry as a programmer at the high level that how it's actually working, you just know that you're basically asking queries that would have taken exponential amount of time before, and now they're not, and now they're going quick. Okay, they're quick, quick. Jeez. And what what kind of hardware does this run on? That's also a good question. So um, most of the field of quantum computing is focused on how can you make hardware systems that can have these particles uh, with these properties. Okay, with these entanglement, with these superpositions, and so. Um, they're kind of physics-based systems. So often they're working at like refrigerated, you know, zero degrees, like as close to absolute zero as you can get, because that's where these particles can be tracked, can be managed, where they don't have a bunch of noise, entanglement can happen. So they're like these kind of like factory warehouse-sized, you know, super giant supercomputers, okay, with all kinds of incredible refrigeration. Or, or there'll be a photonic system, which is lots of light tubes, Okay, lots of fiber optics and light is flowing and they're flowing through kind of waveguides and different filters. Um, and some of them are setting properties and trying to capture and generate and entangle these bits and they're flowing through. So really there's a lot of ways that you can work with fundamental 
um, you know, atoms and different kinds of particles that will have these qubit, you know, quantum properties, many different ways and many different companies and, and sort of research projects exploring which ones will have the best properties for us. There's a wide variety there. And before I, I, I break, I'll say that there's also possibilities to get a lot of these kind of properties you want, even out of normal computers today. Okay. So you can simulate uh, these quantum systems or what we call emulate uh, quantum systems, where you're, you're capturing the fundamental properties as math and then running that math even on normal computers. So they don't always have to be fully, uh, you know, these quantum. And then the other thing I'll say is that we can be like, if you're running on a machine that has those true quantum, you know, qubits with those particles and all those magical properties, you can be like fully quantum computing. But you can also use that kind of quantum thinking, quantum math uh, to be quantum inspired. And so the quantum inspired approach means you're working on probability distributions and all of the kinds of things at the mathematics level, but you can still do much better than you were doing even in classical computing. So there's this kind of approximating quantum computing and hybrids with some quantum computings and some classical approaches with the math that's very active in the field right now. And we're starting to see people making more and more progress. It's amazing. I got one question before Alan decides what he wants to do. Um, <laughs> Alan, because this is the question that we all have fun with. And I think I know Barney's position, but I'm not going to say it. We know there are certain very, very, uh, we'll say, enlightened scientists or, or tech people out there saying computers are going to take over people. They're going to take over the world. And we know who that is and so on, but, um, and, and, and I always say, and that's the frightful part of it. And I could be wrong, but I think Barney always feels as long as a, a, a human is developing that computer and controlling that computer, that won't happen. I could be wrong on that. So Barney, what's your feeling? Tell us the world what you think. Okay. So, yeah. So, so out of science fiction, um, you know, we have, what almost always happens with these AI systems, they become super intelligent and then they just want to take over everything. Yep. Um, you know, Terminators kill everybody. Maybe they're worried about humans as a threat, so we got to take, <laughs> take out the humans. Okay. I don't see any reason why that would really happen. Okay. We can imagine scenarios, but um, humans, humans don't try to kill all the ants. Okay. Right. We, we really could. If we wanted to kill all the ants in the world, we could kill all the ants. But generally, we might kill the ants in our own house, okay, because they don't belong there. Um, but uh, there's no reason for us to kill all the ants, okay? And so we might accidentally destroy environments and have unintended consequences. Um, but in general, unless you have a specific goal for something, um, you're not going to go out and just kill everything, okay? So you might, you might have accidents, okay? okay. So um, and imagine these sort of super intelligent AI systems. There's not really a very good motive for them unless you build that motive in for them to think we need to take over everything and kill everybody. Like, what, what are they trying to achieve there? God, yeah, it's human, it's human desire that would do that, not, not the, the unit. See, people think, oh, it's going to learn so much, it doesn't need you. Well, so that's a different issue, right? Is that, okay. Um, so I think there's the kind of the computers, like, attack and take over everybody and want to, like, enslave or kill everybody, okay? Right. And then you just got to ask yourself, what's the motivation for that? And you can imagine a motivation, which is um, they're programmed to have as much uh, power as they possibly can. And Correct. then they, by, by power, they just want it all. But it doesn't really make much sense. Okay. If you look at um, super smart humans and super smart companies, right, they have their goals, but their goals generally don't involve killing everybody else. Right. You know, just because you're super smart doesn't make you a super villain. 
Yeah. Okay. They're yeah. kind of more the exceptions. There's many, many ways to collaborate and peacefully trade um, and build and savor the diversity that everybody else has and make the world better. Well, you're a happy guy, Barney. That's why you think that well, way. Yeah. But I think, I think the more enlightened people get, um, the more intelligent people get, often the more enlightened they get, right? And they basically, you get your material needs achieved. And then you start thinking about actualization, creativity, helping others, you know, impact, right? And that's what most people finally wind up doing. So I think that's that I don't see why, unless you specifically build it, there may be bad people who will use AIs uh, for bad. That will certainly happen. Um, but there will also be good people using AIs. And, you know, hopefully the good AIs will be able to, you know, counteract um, the bad AIs. But the other issue you raise, Grant, is um, people and jobs, okay? And, you know, that's a diff- kind of a different question because whether or not AIs are trying to be bad and sort of take over everything, more and more jobs will be automated, right? And so the worry is, is there anything left for us to do? Yeah. It's a bit like the worry about the, uh, in, you know, the industrial revolution, okay? I mean, those machines didn't take over the world, but they sure did take over a lot of jobs, okay? okay. And you know who really lost out in jobs with machines? Who really lost out the most? Any guess? Horses. Oh, okay. If you want to go back that far, I get it. Yes. Okay. Right. Their horses used to be used everywhere. Okay. And you know, all the streets, all they were the way you tra- transportation was horses, uh, farming was horses, all kinds of energy generation, all this stuff was horses, right? And basically machines took the place of horses and the horses, it wasn't like they got repurposed into other great jobs. The horses did lose their jobs. For good. Okay. Um, you know, elevator operators lost their jobs and the jobs didn't really, they only come back. Now, um, so you can, there, there are certainly going to be a lot of jobs that will be taken away. Okay. Um, and then there's this kind of question that people have, which is, well, will people be resilient? Will there be new jobs that open up uh, for people or will just all the meaningful jobs go away and then people will somehow be left with dependent on machines or left with nothing to do? or living a life of leisure if the machines are generating all their wealth, right? So there's scenarios you can imagine in multiple ways. Um, my, my thoughts are that there's temporary dislocations, which temporary might be 5, 10, or even 20 years, where some categories of jobs have gone away, um, and the people who used to do the jobs have trouble reskilling, okay, to find something else that's meaningful for them. But what history has shown time and again is that more jobs get created New technology is bringing new jobs. Like a huge amount of the jobs that we have today didn't even exist uh, 20 years ago. It didn't exist. Okay, right. And so you know, imagine we're all in virtual reality. You know, kind of Ready Player One land, like living our lives in some kind of cyber world and experience. And there's all these sort of virtual cities and virtual worlds that are out there. There's people working in those virtual worlds and doing all kinds of things and managing them. And when you have Self-driving cars, you've still got people managing fleets of self-driving cars. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I guess. Right. So um, you've got, you know, video games didn't exist really. And now there's people, huge amount of industry around video game designers, you know, and creators. So my belief is that there will be a lot of jobs that will be created. And we'll also have AI systems helping with education. So it's going to become easier and easier for people to learn who want to learn to find the new opportunities and do new things. So I don't think we're ever going to run out of amazing things for people to do. Hopefully, it gets to be done kind of higher level and more creative and spending more of your time in your flow and your passion um, and sort of being helped to learn to be great at, at things that matter. That's my view of what is likely to happen in the medium-term future. And I'd still say in the sort of the nearer term, there's a lot of dislocation, a lot of challenges ahead. Right. We can talk about the state of journalism right now because there are AI programs that will write newscasts for you. 
uh, or yeah. there are world, my, my <laughs> world is being being infested with AI because there are uh, if you look at the Far East, for example, there are avatars that's uh, on, in China and in Korea that make for very, very realistic news anchors. But they're not. They're 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 machine constructions. So personally, I'm a little bit worried about that. But I want to go back a little bit to the idea of, of the hardware required for this quantum computing. Uh, will we have quantum computers on our desks or will we be accessing this through, will there be like supercomputers somewhere that we just access uh, online? That's a great question. So the first thing that you'll see uh, will be cloud-based, cloud-based supercomputers. Okay. Everything's going to the cloud anyway. I mean, well, lots of things are going to the cloud anyway. Right. So, you know, you're already tapping into all this computing in the cloud and now quantum computing will just be there as a new set of computing you can tap into. At the same time, um, there are a number of approaches that people are working on to get quantum computing capability running on uh, really on the edge, on edge devices, because you want the combination, you know, you want the superpower, the maximal superpower in the cloud, but you also would like to have maximal superpower on your devices. Okay. But I think that'll come, that'll definitely come second. The first place you're going to see it is going to be in the cloud. Okay. When? The first thing about when is right now. Okay. There are already companies using quantum computing and companies tapping into quantum computing in the cloud and different kinds of versions of quantum computing. And they're still in somewhat early days, but people are now able to start designing drugs, um, designing materials, solving financial equations, other kinds of things like that, using quantum computing in the cloud today and doing a better job than they could do with the classical system before. There's in fact a Canadian company called D-Wave um, based in Vancouver, and they've got a special kind of quantum computer. It doesn't solve all the quantum computing problems, but it solves optimization problems uh, very well. Um, and they've got lots of support and programming languages. You can go online right now, search for D-Wave and find a way you can probably even start going and programming it, you know, and kind of writing programs. Jeez. But um, I was very excited because uh, I saw a couple of years ago um, a, uh, a company generating, discovering new materials. Okay. Um, a Canadian company discovering new materials actually started using that and they started being able oh, yeah. to, to generate materials that they couldn't do otherwise and do them better. So um, I think that, that it's already turned to where there are practical commercial applications. And it's, there's it's, quantum satellites being launched. I mean, um, so. Oh, there's quantum satellite. I mean, there's, there's a whole, well, I, I should mention this on the quantum computing. One thing that quantum computing, real quantum computing will do will enable people to break all known encryption. Yes, we've talked about that before. Barney, okay. that's a problem. Okay, and so, um, so that's a problem. Lots of people worried about that. Um, another thing is you might think that's a problem for some time in the future, but um, today, you know, people can go, like, you know, countries can go and steal your data, even if they can't break it yet, and just know that within five years or so, they'll be able to break it. So your data wow, today wait a minute. is already not safe. They call it store now, store now, decrypt later. Okay. okay? So if you're a big company, you, you know, if you're a big company, how do you feel about all your secrets today being known in five years? Okay. That's news. That's news. It's a problem. Okay. So it's already actually should be a pressing problem for everybody. Um, and um, there's a group of people working then on how are we going to deal with um, encryption and communications in a post-quantum world um, because it's a real problem now. And there's kind of two approaches that you can take. One is quantum communications. Okay, so new communication systems that are actually quantum because quantum computing won't be able to break quantum computing, quantum communication systems. And people are making satellite links with quantum communications. Yeah. People are making fiber links uh, with quantum. They're trying to see how far they can go. 
China is building out this infrastructure, Europe is yeah, building yeah, out some. Yeah. So there's kind of a race is on um, to make these sort of just replace our whole like commuting infrastructure with some sort of a, a quantum thing. And then the other one is um, is just new encryption algorithms. Okay, so quantum computers will break existing encryption yes. because um, they can essentially factor large prime numbers, which is the basis for all of our encryption today. Okay, but if you can make things that or that aren't based on that or do things in a different way, then presumably you might be able to be resistant to quantum computing. So I'm actually involved in in a project where we have um, some capabilities actually that will be quantum resistant. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 based on math. It's different ways of doing things. Um, but in order for quantum computer to break the kind of encryption that we're developing, um, you know, they'd have to solve all the hardest problems in the universe, right? There's just nothing about how quantum computers work that gives them an advantage in breaking the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And I think that's a whole new, whole new podcast. But um, on that, yeah. one, I'm going to tell you, it's pretty amazing, guys. And probably a good place to stop. This is a lot to digest. Thank you. Oh my God. Uh, for for bringing all this to our attention, uh, I'm gonna have did to go I not back tell and... you. Did I no, not you, tell you, you did. This guy is uh, one of the most amazing guys in the world. Well, we'll have to get you back and talk more about because I got a billion other questions that we just don't have time for. I know, for I know you time. do. He we can do it every week, guys. He this loves is it. So he much fun. Let's yeah. just let's just he come back and do it. some more. I'm I'm happy to talk about any of this stuff. I it's know. All look the at him. He's jumping up and down right now. Yeah, it's been really great. Been really great, Barney. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, good luck with whatever endeavors you're working on right now. And we will be in touch. Sounds good. Bye, guys. That was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. And that's all we've got for this edition of the Smart City Podcast. We'll be back soon with another program featuring more smart people and their ideas for connecting us together through smart technologies. Feedback is always welcome. Send everything and anything through feedback at thesmartcity.blog. Yes, dot blog. Check out our website, thesmartcity.blog, for past programs as well as who and what else is coming up. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Executive Producers, Grant Furley. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. Executive Assistant, Andrea Crawford. I'm Ellen Cross, and we'll see you next time.